Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. You're listening to episode 40, and this week I spoke to Liz Spencer of The Dogwood Dyer. Liz really walks me through her educational experience relating to fiber art and how it led her to where she is today, from the London College of Fashion to working as a seamstress. Liz had what she refers to as a backwards approach to natural dyeing, beginning with her gardening natural dye plants before ever dyeing with them. She has experienced many forms of fiber and many ways of relating to the medium, but she feels like natural dyeing is the one that's really stuck and is one she continues to practice and learn more about every day. Liz explains how she's made her practice work from a small apartment in Brooklyn to a family home in Riverside, alongside raising children and teaching in academic institutions. What I really appreciate about talking to Liz is her honesty and her sincerity. It's so clear how much Liz loves and is fascinated by natural dyeing, and I loved how she really tells us how she made it work for her and how she and her family plan to make it work in the future. She's certainly a person whose work inspires me endlessly, so I'm excited to share with all of you what she had to say. Listen on for our whole chat. Thanks for tuning in. A huge thank you to this week's episode sponsor, Making Things. When I first noticed Making Things on Instagram, I was intrigued and curious. It looked like a new way of engaging with patterns that I didn't totally get at first, but after talking with the founder, Megan, who started and ran Wool Days, a yarn company whose yarn and ethos I greatly admire, all the bits and pieces started to come together for me. Making Things is the digital home for your knitting and crochet. They've created a full set of digital tools for interactive patterns, counters, row highlighters, chart grids, editable notes, and live pattern support designed by and for our community. It's been developed alongside 500 knitters, crocheters, and designers, which means that it's that everyone's desires and needs are being accounted for with making things. Launching soon, Making Things is going to be such an improvement on the old way of working with patterns. I know I'm excited to try it firsthand as I'm a bit of a queen of my notes on scrawled paper and constantly losing my place in my knitting. You can follow Making Things journey as they go live on Instagram at the Making Things app and online at makingthingsapp.com. Again, thank you so much to Making Things for sponsoring this episode of the Close Knit Podcast. So I have like a lot of questions I was mentioning when we before we started recording. Um and I'd love to talk about like how you kind of ended up in in Riverside and everything, but I also uh in like preparing for the podcast was looking at your website and then <laughs> somehow like found myself on your LinkedIn profile and I felt like compelled to publicly just admit that to you because I was like LinkedIn is one of those like creepy things where you're going to get an email later that's going to be like Ani Lee was looking at you on LinkedIn Um, um, because I knew that I knew I had read a bit about like your educational background but I was like going farther back and 
um, did I read correctly or am I remembering correctly that you studied like um, art history and art? I did. Originally? I did. Is that Correct. right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Can you walk me through all that? Yeah. <laughs> the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. I, my journey is kind of meandering, but loosely held in the arts, in, in the arts. Um, you know, I, I went to a liberal arts school for my undergraduate uh, in Oregon, a, Lin- a really small school called Linfield, and a really beautiful part of Oregon. I mean, well, all of Oregon's beautiful, but um, in the Yamhill Valley, um, kind of like Oregon's wine country. <laughs> and um, it's, I, w- I went there intentionally to a liberal arts school because I actually didn't want, didn't know what I, exactly what I wanted to study. And I felt like, you know, getting a... Um, or being forced to, at least, with the liberal arts model, uh, study uh, various different uh, parts of the humanities that I would find something that would be like, ding, 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 that's it. And um, and I and I had actually uh, thoroughly practiced as an artist uh, t- as a teenager in high school. You know, I took as many art classes as I, as I could, visual arts. Um, but I sort of just denied it as a practical uh, profession. <laughs> And right. uh, was like, oh, I'll find something maybe like ecology, which I love, um, and took some eco- ecology classes, um, anthropology, which actually, I mean, isn't any more practical, <laughs> um, but is a little bit more uh, finite and, and um, definite, I think, than you know the broad term of artist. Um, and history classes, of course, I took, um, but finally, I've, I've, you know, kind of held out to the very end till I think the middle point of my junior year and finally called art as my major <laughs> studio art okay. I was like okay this is it I'm doing it you know jumping fully in um and then I had a double minor in French and art history I studied abroad in oh, France okay. for six months in the south of France in Aix-en-Provence for half of my uh, junior year um and then art history as well and I actually art history um I'd love to get back into it and and take some more like courses but it's been a long time um but my art history professor in in school really was sort of my gateway to fiber arts like the very beginning like I uh I had I got a uh this is how you knit kit for Christmas from my boyfriend my junior year um and he's like I think you really like knitting and I was like I think you I think you're right you know me really well (laughs) and I took knit my first scarf and um and uh, was, you know, getting, trying new techniques. Like I was like, I think I'm going to try intarsia now. And, um, and then I was like, maybe I can apply this to like uh, an assignment. And I was taking a, a portraiture class. Um, and the professor had sort of assigned, uh, really open, anybody could do any media you want, as long as it's a self portrait. Mm-hmm. So I knit a self portrait and I was, you know, it took 40 plus hours, um, staying up multiple nights and, I was so proud of it, and it looked actually, it looked pretty dang good, I think, for my first intarsia piece. Wow. <laughs> um, it was small. I mean, it was like maybe 12 by 12, but when we were critiquing it on, criti- on Crit Day, um, I was just so jazzed about it, you know, and it, just this new media that I found that I could really, like, express, um, and that really just sort of finally made sense, like, a, a lot of my other interests, um, history, um, women's work and, uh, and just, you know, finding a place for my hands that felt comfortable. Anyway, talking about, about all that during the crit and 
from what I remember, the main feedback that my professor at least gave was he sort of chuckled and said, or I had actually said, um, I think this would be a really interesting fiber for me or medium for me to explore for my thesis for my next year. You know, that's the big thing. Your senior year, right? You got to have a thesis. You gotta, um, uh, that's what you work on most of your senior year as an art major. Uh-huh. And uh, he sort of he sort of chuckled and, and basically said, oh, we'll see how that how that works out. Um, and it was really like, oh, like stabbed to the heart. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, he's He's a an incredible painter, um, and I really respect his feedback. Um, but that there was sort of like, oh, okay, maybe fibers aren't aren't taken seriously, and maybe they maybe they aren't the right route. So I kind of hesitantly did I, I did incorporate fibers in my final thesis. It was a mixed media. Um, I did gel transfers where I took photographs on a uh, a road trip across the or to Chicago that spring break, and then. Um, and then incorporate gel. I don't know if you're familiar. Gel transfers are just like a, I put acrylic medium on a photograph, and then the photograph itself transfers onto the gel medium, and then you pull the paper backing away. So you've got this kind of clear, almost transparent image that you could do anything with. You could cut it up and collage. You could stretch it. You could. And what I chose to do is to do some hand stitch details okay. um, to sort of place imagery um, on the American landscape, um, and. And then that's what I showed. And so that was sort of like the very beginning of my interest in fibers. And then um, after I graduated, I um, did a fiber apprenticeship for a fiber artist in Portland, moved to Portland. And she's an incredible artist, um, Tammy Bremer. Uh, She, at the moment, was working on a really long-term project where she was doing self-portrait hook rugs. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever hooked. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, but it was like super fine yarn, you know, and you know how labor intensive that was. So she's, um, she had intention to do, I don't know how, how many she ended up doing in the end, but, um, the first one took nine months working full time to finish and all the, all the, all the yarn was hand dyed. I think it might've actually been naturally dyed. I don't, I don't know to ask her, but, um, so I was helping her and, um, you know, when I was sort of interviewing for the, for the internship, she was like, oh, you know how to sew, right? And I was like, Yeah totally lied. I did not know how to sew. <laughs> I mean, I knew how to yeah. sew on a button and um, hand stitch, but um, nothing on a machine. And so uh, I pulled my grandmother's sewing machine out of the uh, closet that my mom had handed down to me and took a sewing class mm. uh, at the sewing machine shop in Portland. Um, and uh, I helped her sew as, a, as an addendum to the project. She was um, sewing these nude tool ball gowns to go Whoa. with the nude self-portraits yeah. um, uh, of the rugs. Actually, a really funny story um, about that project. She was, uh, her first rug that took that nine months to make um, was on exposition or was on um, display in the gallery. Uh, and it was stolen from the gallery. <laughs> and she, oh I found out about it. I actually, I was knitting, watching the news, not really watching, just mostly listening to the news because I was knitting. Yeah. And I heard Tammy's voice on the news, you know, next up, this local artist's piece is stolen from the gallery. And I was, that's how I found out about it. I, um, and then I called her, what happened? You know, she was for, for sort of this 24-hour um, whirlwind of an experience. She hadn't had time to, like, let me know. And um, about nine months later, I think it was a little bit less than a year, the rug was returned in a trash bag on the doorstep of the gallery. Gosh knows what happened to it. Oh my God. <laughs> but it was, 
All she had to do was dry clean it, and it was good as new. <laughs> so, um, so that was sort of my like formal entrance into working in fibers exclusively. Mm. Working with her, um, I taught myself how to sew. You know, I took that first work. You know, this is how you use your sewing machine class, right. and then I basically taught myself everything else I knew from then on. I um, started um, finding interesting fabrics at thrift shops. Uh, Portland at the time, I mean, I'm sure they still do, had um, the best thrift shops um, for for fabric yardage. Uh, I see that less and less, actually, uh, like, you know, old bed sheets and fabric being sold at, at thrift stores, right. at thrift stores. But yeah. then there was a lot to be had. Yeah. So it was mostly like out of thrift, you know, not having much money, but finding inexpensive fabric to, to make, you know, making dresses. So I had a little Etsy shop and sold handmade dresses from upcycled fabrics. And um, that was, an, uh, it, I spent three years in Portland doing that. And uh, uh, all the while sort of like secretly loving fashion and not telling anybody <laughs> you know like educating myself and, and watching fashion week you know um but not telling people just because I was sort of you know I'd, I guess hesitant of what they would think of me just because oh well, like she's interested in fashion so you know it's got all these um you know honestly saying on fashion people don't really uh take it very seriously, uh, most people um, consider it to be, uh, or maybe not, maybe don't even consider it an art. Uh, but um, and then also knowing as a uh, an ecologist at heart that it's you know it's a dirty industry, like it's the second largest um, polluting industry. Uh, that's a very vague statistic, and I know that's been um, contentious, but it is. Um, it's it's definitely true that that fashion is not it's not so great for the earth. Um, so, and the people involved with it. So I, you know, was like really interested in fashion, but trying to figure out how to do, do it in, uh, in such a way, um, professionally, apart from sewing or sewing dresses and selling them on Etsy, um, full time and do it without, you know, with a clear conscience and feeling like I was, um, doing better, uh, as opposed to less bad. Uh, and then just started like researching grad school, maybe thinking, you know, it's been a while, it's been three or four years since I graduated. I, I'm like, I'm really, really wanting to learn more from um, people that I can, I, I, I want a mentor and, and want to be around other people that are interested in this and found a program uh, in London at the London College of Fashion. At the time, it was called Fashion in the Environment. And um, I think it's now they've relabeled it as Fashion Futures. Uh, but I was like, fashion and the environment, what, <laughs> that is, you know, there's two words in one, in one sentence and it's a degree. So I applied to that and, uh, got in and, uh, I had moved to Seattle. Um, I started dating my partner at the time and, um, lost my job. I was working, uh, in Portland. I was working at a, um, family owned letterpress shop, uh, working as a typesetter and a designer. And, um, that was a 2008, uh, crash or the beginning of the recession. So I lost my job, decided to move to Seattle because I'd been doing this long distance thing with, with Sam, my partner. So um, for a year while I was applying to grad school and like creating my collection so that I could like have something to apply with, you know, my collection of clothes, um, I worked as a, um, a seamstress. So I worked in an alteration shop in, Port in Seattle and learned a lot about sewing, taking clothes apart, nice clothes too, like, you know, well, all types of clothes, but um, nothing like you know, testing your skills when you have to take the back seam apart 
of someone's uh, designer jeans and put it back together and make it look good, or you know, taking the zipper out and putting it back in and doing that, you know, uh, over and over. So I learned a lot sewing uh, that one that gap year there between living in, in Portland and then moving to London, and um, and then also, <laughs> funnily enough, I to add to my fiber um, love. And uh, and thirst for knowledge and, and experiential knowledge too. That year and a half when I was living in Seattle, um, I shacked up with my partner. We li- we lived in a little um, two bedroom, uh, like four hundred square foot cottage in in Renton on the Renton Issaquah border, which is just outside of um, Seattle on uh, on the other side of Lake Washington. And right, it's beautiful and um, but just close enough for me to uh, drive to Seattle to work. And we kind of, we had a, I always call it a hobby farm experience. <laughs> and it was started with chickens. You know, I was like, we should get chickens. That'd be fun to have our own eggs. And we had the space and he had the building skills to be able to build the coop. And there was an old barn there on the property that we, um, that we also could use. And, um, and then he was like, let's get sheep. And I was like, yes, let's get sheep. And then, um, then we got, he just kept adding fiber animals onto the property. So we had Two alpacas, six sheep, two llamas. We had pigs for a while, um, chickens all all the time, uh, goats, um, and so that was a really uh, incredible experience to be able to to see the whole process from you know like obviously I knew how to knit, but um, I want to see the I want to shear the animal, I want to clean the fleece, mm-hmm. uh, I want to spin it, um, and then I'm going then I'm going to knit something. So. That is what sort of informed my collection and my dissertation when I went to London. Mm. So when I went to London for fashion and the environment, I um, had my, I, I decided on my dissertation to focus on um, encouraging the fashion industry to look to biodiversity when choosing animal fiber instead of just merino, 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 although I love merino, but... Um, so I interviewed and sourced fiber from so many incredible farmers and um, and indigenous peoples. So things like kiviat, I don't know, like muskox fiber, um, paco vicuña, which is this really strange interbred animal that is fine fiber like a vicuña, but is legally breedable in the United States. Um, rare breed sheep in the UK. Uh, just, you know, alpaca, um, angora. I became friends with um, an amazing gal in upstate New York who breeds angora bunnies and makes these incredible accessories. Um, her name's Ambika. Uh, while well, I had a summer off of my, um, of my one and a half year master's degree program, I came to New York and actually did an internship um, at the Textile Arts Center. Um, and specifically there because while I was in London, um, you know, at my knitting machine and um, at my computer, I really um, anticipated actually before I even had decided on what my dissertation was going to be that I would probably need something else to just really a break from um, school because I was treating school like a full-time job. I didn't actually have a job. I was just um, studying and going to as many lectures and um, meetups and really embedding myself in the sustainable fashion community there as possible. Um, so there actually was an opportunity, a local community garden approached the school, the London Culture Fashion, and said, hey, you have this green space next to your college that nobody's using. 
how about collaborating with some students and us and maybe we could create a dye garden. Mm. And uh, my course um, leader brought this to the to our course because they thought that would be a nice fit with the fashion and environment gals and I sort of like jumped on it and was like me 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 that sounds like like fabulous you know um, so I always say that I had a sort of a backwards entrance into the natural dye world because I started growing all, many plants and planting this dye garden before I actually had done any dyeing well I had had one failed dye experiment with, you know, picking all the dandelions in my yard and like not knowing about mordants and like overboiling the flowers and just sort of, um, but so I, um, I did a funding proposal and we had some volunteer days and we raised enough money for, um, just enough, you know, for the soil and, the um, the, the, uh, the lumber for the raised beds and the seeds. And uh, we created our dye garden. I had three raised beds, and 15 months—the the length of the P, of the of the program in London was just a long long enough time for me to uh, to do all that to to foresee the, the the first year of growth. So sowing the seeds, um, tending the garden, uh, picking flowers, drying them, dyeing some silk scarves, selling those at a craft market to raise money for the next year's seeds. You know. Um, and it's a student-run project. It still is in existence. It's still, um, there's multiple gardens actually now it's grown because the London College of Fashion has five different campus locations throughout London. So um, there are various other green spaces that have been, um, that are now growing dye plants. Oh, wow. um, and so that was my start. And I really like just got addicted and couldn't stop dying. I, I call it the natural dye high. <laughs> It's sort of this, like, just, um, I, you know, I, up until that point, I had, I had kind of vi- viewed myself as a, um, a serial learner in fibers as far as like, you know, oh, I'm, I've learned how to, um, to knit. Now I want to learn how to spin. Now I want to learn how to weave. Now I'm going to take, you know, uh, rug hooking 101. I'm going to take all the 101 classes, you know. Right. Um, and go a little bit in depth with practice too with uh, some of them but with natural dyeing it's really stuck and now since 2011 which is when I started the dye garden now here are 2018 it's been seven years that I've really feel like I'm it's the closest thing that I've come to mastering I'm not a master but I I think it'll stick with me for multiple reasons I think because it's got so many different worlds that I can sort of so many different peripheral worlds that I can kind of dip my toes into like botany horticulture history chemistry color theory um so after the dye garden after i had to leave london um after i finished my degree i had done it i did an internship during the summer when i had the summer off in uh in new york mm. where my partner sam sam actually grew up in new york and so he was like well i'm still in seattle and i want to see you where you know we were doing a long distance relationship and he said let's just do the summer in new york and we'll live there and try it out and see because I had kind of envisioned myself moving to New York and not going back to Seattle mm. for, to work in fashion mm. and to make a difference in, um, in a sustainable way. Uh, and so we lived there that first summer and then he packed up his business. He's a landscaper. He'd had a landscaping business uh, for 10 years in Seattle and moved to New York uh, after I finished my degree uh, that winter. And I got a job working for a network company and learned a lot and worked for them for a year, but wasn't incredibly happy. Uh, I really didn't feel like I was making the difference that I wanted. Um, one thing actually that I realized when I was in school at London is that um, I love 
teaching. I taught a couple workshops at the Textile Art Center on dye, as well as um, at the at the Garden in London. Um, and that there really is a gap there. There's not. I mean, there, it's getting better in in, in fashion education, um, but not enough education on sustainability at the foundation level. Mm. It's it's kind of like, oh, here, take this elective on you know sustainability. Um, or just the fact that my master's degree was focused on sustainability, and that's a degree after the fact. So um, that I, if I wanted to make a difference, that I could, and if I loved teaching, that I could, um, I could there, you know, by by teaching it from the very beginning of a textiles education and, or fashion education. Um, so I also started teaching. Um, living in New York, I taught at Parsons, um, uh, a sustainable systems class. Um, I taught a class all about how to design garments um, with the intention and understanding of how they're to be cared for um, in collaboration with Timo Riesenen. And um, I taught natural dyes. I taught um, junior level, um, sort of like a basic class for all juniors in fashion at Parsons. So I taught myself a lot actually in, in teaching there too, or, or learned a lot. You learn a lot when you're teaching, which I think one reason why I love teaching is because I'm a forever student. I'll always want to learn or be in a, an educational atmosphere, I think. Um, and then I, I'll continually, I also continually teach at FIT, uh, a natural dye class, a natural dye intensive every spring and summer, sometimes in the, in the um, oh, sorry, every spring and fall, sometimes in the summer too. Mm. Um, but, you know, I wasn't happy at my knit job. I just, cause I just, it, it was great. I learned a lot. And inherently, the company was very sustainable because they're creating high quality, mostly cashmere, animal fiber, um, knit goods that aren't going to be thrown away. They're not, it's not fast fashion. But mm. um, but I, I really just was not happy. So I quit my job, <laughs> not knowing really what I was going to do. Um, and uh, kind of position, or interviewed for a few um, jobs just to, to make ends meet. Uh, sold my car to pay rent, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then I, I showed my dye book that I had been slowly adding to little swatches, you know, of all my dye experiments to um, a woman that I was interviewing uh, for a shop gal position at her shop, um, and she was like, "Oh, this is lovely. Will you dye something for me?" And I was like, "Yeah, I could do that." And um, and I was like, actually, you know, this makes like I could I could do this professionally. I've done this enough, enough. And um, and then more and more was hearing from friends that had small fashion labels that they wanted, you know, that they wanted to find somebody that could do it for them because they know how how long of a learning curve there is to natural dye application. Mm. Um, and so I started natural dyeing small scale, you know, anywhere between one to fifty pieces in my two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and found a studio space and a mentorship at the Brooklyn Fashion Design Accelerator, the BFDA, which was really um, lucky for me, literally just three blocks down the, the street from my apartment. Um, and was there and got some incredible business mentorship. And um, there, too, I really discovered that I love teaching mm. um, and that sometimes, too, depending upon the systems that are put in the processes and the season and what it is that I'm dying, I actually earn a better living when I'm teaching, um, you know. And so I also uh, circumstantially uh, had just found out I was pregnant and was, and you know, had my first son, had Dalton. And um, so being a full-time mom, 
um, teaching is a lot easier for me to, to, to make my own schedule as opposed to um, production dying. Um, I'm now actually at the point where I'm starting to take production work on this, this year, uh, now that my daughter is almost two, um, she's a, she's able to kind of like, I have a mommy's helper come and, uh, or my brother-in-law who's actually watching the kids right now. Um, so yeah, so I've, uh, I really identify like the Dogwood Dyer. My business is now kind of like a three prong approach right. where I, I act as an educational platform, teaching independent workshops, and then also at educational institutions. Um, and I'm starting now to do product a little bit reluctantly, but, um, but actually I'm really excited about what I'm, what I'm creating with my friend. Um, and then also doing production. So, um, I I just, uh, production is, is, is tough and it's anybody that's done natural dyeing in a larger scale, uh, beyond craft dyeing knows like it's expensive because <laughs> X, Y, Z, it's a, uh, it's a labor of love uh, and it's tricky and there's a lot to it. So yeah. uh, it's something that I, that I take on with select clients that understand that, that know that it's, that the color is what it is and you can only really wrangle it so much. So, um, so that's my story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of meandering. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but also no, like yes and no, but all those things like really seem to me to go very closely together and to fit hand in hand. And like you were saying with like kind of moving around from bits of fiber to be like, okay, I was knitting and then I like had some animals and then I was weaving and then I was spinning or vice versa. Like, I think it's quite a logical trajectory to go from for a lot of folks to go from like, I started by knitting or I started by sewing. And then what I wanted to know, I had more questions, like, how did it get from here to here? And that to me makes a lot of sense of like wanting to have either more control over the process or more understanding of the process or just more involvement in it and like less to be able to go farther and farther back to animal or plant or whatever it is, than having to rely on buying it from a from a source where you just don't know. Oftentimes you just don't know. Um, but it is really interesting to me that your like natural dye journey was from garden to eventual dyeing. That's interesting yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah. 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 It is a kind of a backwards. I mean, yeah. I think also that's another reason why I will, I don't think I could be a natural dyer without having a garden just cause I, it's like right. starting there is, that's just, it's one of the most magical parts of it is to be able to be part of that. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course, I love supporting ethical natural dye suppliers and getting things that I can't grow that are either, you know, come from a tropical environment or um, that I just, you know, uh, something that I can't do myself. But I love that entire process. And again, like being a student of another world of, of botany and I'm actually considering I want to get my master gardener certificate, something else to make time for, <laughs> just so that I can really, <laughs> um, there's a local uh, native plant nursery in LA that I've been like, you know, scoping their website and seeing if I can work that into my schedule in the next year or so to get, um, to really thoroughly understand and, and to make my garden healthier and, um, and to know the local plants even better here. <clears throat> God, that's so cool. There's just so much in what you're doing too. That's like, 
Yeah, it's just cool. And it's exciting to hear, too, that there were these periods of time where you were just learning on the job for a year or trying something yeah. else out and then realizing, like, actually, I learned a lot here, but that's not where I want to be. So I'm going to sell my car, pay my rent and go. <laughs> like, that, I mean, it's just a reality, right? Like, it's scary and difficult and not always, we're not always super flush in this industry. So it's kind of, yeah, it's nice to hear someone who, like, especially from my perspective, is like very successful at what she does. <laughs> um, and like watching you do all these things that are fascinating and amazing, but to hear the whole journey of getting there is really helpful. Oh, you know? yeah. 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 I mean, and even in our situation right now, we're so lucky to be where we are. We're living in Riverside, California, which is about an hour east mm -hmm. of LA. Um, because my partner, Sam's family has this house that's kind of in this limbo period that, um, they, unfortunately no one in the house can really take it on cause it's quite a big house and, or sorry, no one in the family can take it on and, you know, everybody's right. set up where they are. Um, and so his aunt and uncle has offered it to us to live in and love until, um, they'll put it on the market next year and sell it. Um, but it is a family, it's been in a, you know, his grandmother's, uh, his grandmother and grandfather father moved here right after they married in the 40s and have changed the house remarkably um and so it's quite and, you know and we've got a um 160 orange trees a little tiny uh grove here riverside is the birthplace of the citru citrus industry in america so there's a lot of citrus heritage here um yeah. and it's waning um so there used to be 80 plus acres just uh, on the back of the house and that was all sold off in the 90s and so we've just kind of got this little like heritage groves attached to the side of the house and so I've got tons of space more space actually than I can personally garden but I've got um you know the garden's gotten better over the last three um summers so um and so it's just a crazy departure from what I had you know like trying to neatly dye things in my um two-bedroom apartment in, in urban Brooklyn to like expansive you know we've got avocado trees and um uh, obviously the oranges and, um, and then I've got an outdoor studio. Um, and luckily in Southern California, I can work outdoors year round. So yeah, the studio, yeah. the messy studio is outside, I've got the sewing studio inside. Um, but you know, that's, that's, we're really lucky to have this here, especially at the time when our family is young. So the kids have, mm. um, you know, we haven't started them in school yet. They'll, um, I, I'm still researching what kind of school, um, I want my kids uh, to be in, but um, we might actually travel a little bit when they're young, like the, in the next two years, and I might do some homeschooling. But um, to, you know, it's not this experience that we have is uh, a result of my partner's family in there. Um, so it will be very sad to see it go. Um, yeah. But but uh, just loving it and really just living it while we have it. Yeah, that's huge. And it's, I like, appreciate you just being transparent about it because it's not always obvious how people are making things work and particularly yeah. in a climate where, like, our rent <laughs> anywhere in the world is just obs obscenely high. It's sort of like, how do you make these things work of, of having enough space to do the things that you really want to do? And yeah. yeah. So it is, it is just, it's totally this, yeah, this equation that seems very tricky to get right, but it I appreciate when people who, yeah, seemingly have 
it (laughs) are just upfront about what it, you know, what it is and how it came to be and where, you know, what factors play into that. And that's just, I think that's just an important part of humanizing the whole experience of it. And, you know, the way that you kind of look through social, the social media lens of like, everything is a golden, golden filter and their life looks so beautiful and good. And just, I think that that's part of why I relate to it in the way that I do, where I'm like, hey, hi, got some things, got some feelings, yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, this thing's <laughs> happening and it's, it's hard, or like, I'm not really making much money at doing whatever this is, like, that kind of thing, just to be, I don't know, there's no right way, but it feels right to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still, exactly, I still go back and forth between crunching numbers and figuring out like oh, we have to about this house and what it would mean to keep it in our family and it would mean sinking savings yeah. um and uh and also just I mean the house itself we love it so much it's not the it's not right for us because it is really too much physical space inside right. um the outdoor space it's actually like I like having extra, more outdoor space than indoor space um but it, it just it wouldn't work for us um and we'd have to also do it collaboratively with Sam's brother right. and he's a musician and he's, he's going to hit the road. And so, um, I think, uh, that's, that's, what's also really nice is to have this three year period to see, kind of say goodbye to the house, but also, um, yeah, just live in it and, and love it. And, but yeah, I, um, am in, incredibly in gratitude to his family for allowing us to, cause they, you know, there, it was, it's a risk to let family live in a house and, you know, it's, I think they probably had people telling them, you probably shouldn't let your, your nephews live in that house. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Who knows? Like family, you know, when, when stuff gets divided or, you know, it's, it's not always like easy. And so we're very, very like uh, aware of how, um, how his family is, is really just being very generous with us and, uh, I mean, we're paying rent and we're paying the cost of living in the house and, and, but, um, it's, we're going to definitely downsize. When we right, 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 right. <laughs> we're like, um, I was just, yeah, when we're starting to look now where I'm hoping to have a little space to garden and, yeah. um, I'll have to really maximize my, my garden space, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's nice about being in LA is, is like you're saying, you can kind of, it's feasible to have a little less indoor space because you can get outside and your kids can be playing outside and you can be doing stuff outside. That sounds really, really good. (laughs) Really special. Yeah. I know that you've kind of talked a little bit like long-term plans and stuff about maybe trying to travel and teach. Like what would that look like with, in terms of how important the gardening side of it is for you with your, with, with natural dyeing, like how, how do you envision that working? Yeah, true. Totally. Um, well, what the rough plan that we're aiming towards is, um, Mm. at the end of our tenure here at the house at the end of 2018, we're going to, um, we'll probably rent a place and, or maybe we'll find a perfect place to buy. We've, um, we're finally at the place where we can qualify for a home loan, (laughs) but we're, um, (laughs) so we might buy, but we'd like to maybe buy a place and then have it rentable so that we can have, um, a space to kind of right. land when we finish traveling. Um, and then, uh, travel. I mean, the dream is for Sam works as a landscaper. He works for a landscaping company and, um, uh, to be able to take a year off, um, he'll take a year off 
but I'll technically still keep working in the sense that I'll be educating. But yeah, I wouldn't have a garden. Mm-hmm. I'd probably, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now loosely and starting to, um, to, to sort of figure out what I would want to focus on for my research project or, or if it, um, if it needs to be narrowed down, but um, looking at foraging or interviewing and documenting um, natural dyers all over the country and, you know, having it be an exploration as well as me teaching natural dye methods in classes um, and, and really also just an excuse to travel and explore the country. <laughs> Sam is, Sam has a van that he's um, renovating and we've done a, we did a long six week road trip two summers ago when I was pregnant with May uh, with my daughter and um, it was perfect. It was like that middle period where I wasn't sick, but I wasn't like huge. <laughs> and we went from Southern California up to Colorado and then through the middle of the country and then did, um, you know, spent a week at the, at the beach with my family, which we don't get to see my family very often. So that was nice. And then um, down to the South and then through Texas and then to see some of Sam's family and then back to, um, to Southern California. And that just sort of wet, Right. wet our appetite right. you know we really um want to do that more want to get back on the road and um I think that would be convenient or it'd be a nice timing now while the kids are still little and I can do a homeschool year um and um we camp we call it vamping we we van camp <laughs> we sleep like he's yeah. he's built it out so he's got um a bed and so it's a lot it's a little bit easier than van, than yeah. tent camping but um but yeah he's uh, he's set on that. I'm really excited about it too. And I'd love to make, make the journey educational and, and focus on, um, on foraging. If I, you know, if I, if I need dye stuffs, <laughs> finding things, yeah. uh, restaurants along the way. And right. I've done a little bit of that. Like I, I collaborated with a restaurant in light, um, in Brooklyn called lighthouse and saved or they saved all their avocado pits and onion skins for me for a few months. And I actually still have a cachet of onion skins and I'm working my way through that. They had so much. Um, and yeah, it's, there's just, I love finding waste streams, like opportunities to tap waste streams for optimal. And I kind of have this thing about waste in my life. It has been debilitating as well as encouraging, you know, um, I'm sh- so many parts of my process could be so much more efficient if I didn't focus on, you know, wasting dye and or wasting dye stuffs or, um, you know, parts of my garden. And um, it's a little cuckoo sometimes, <laughs> but, um, but also good. You know, I think that's why I'm here or why I'm doing what I'm doing, my interest in, in right. conserving and, and pres- how precious our resources and materials are. Um, Right. Yeah. So, uh, waste using waste is incredible. And the avocado alone is like, it's just such a dream. Like I love that dye plant or that dye stuff. Yeah. And it's such a perfect, it's like, it's sort of dumb. It sounds kind of dumb to say this, but like, it's also such a perfect sort of like climate for it in terms of like people just love this color right now too. I know. <laughs> so like it's like silly in the in so far as like it's trendy but that's also such an effective way to like begin to get people interested in something yeah. to be like hey here's this beautiful color that you already like that you can make with something that you probably already eat mm-hmm. you know? I think that's like, why it's so it's, it was actually I was yeah. thinking about this the other day it was the first natural dye mm-hmm. that I tried because when I sowed the seeds mm-hmm. in London like we had a full like 
four months were before we had anything even like growing um, uh, to, to harvest. And so I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta dye something. And, you know, using I, the avocados were definitely my first dye experience, um, natural dye experience. And, uh, yeah, like I have been talking about it for a while. I haven't taken the time to actually full follow through with it, but here in Southern California or California in general, there are avocado groves. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for making use of waste. Um, and yeah, that color, the millennial pink is definitely, and I'll, like right. when people look through my portfolio and see all my color swatches, like I'd say that, that indigo and then like a gray that you can get with any tannin and iron, those are the three that people love. Like, Oh, I love that nude pink. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just cause it's like, yeah, yeah it's a, it's a creamy, beautiful color. I want to talk really quick about, um, something I like always talk about when I talk about you, which is like frequently, <laughs> That's so creepy. I'm like, have you seen Liz? I'm always like pointing. Anyway. Yay, thank you. Um, <laughs> basically, I'm a fangirl of face, pretty much everyone I bring on the podcast, and I'm just talking about you all, all the time. Um, I was, is that, is this kind of approach that you have, particularly with your kids, of like taking their clothes and either making them or dying over them, or I loved especially this idea because I really haven't seen this done. Like I've seen people paint with natural dyes on paper and other things, but I really have not seen, and maybe I'm not looking in the right place, but as far as I can see with my like field of view in the natural dye world, I really haven't seen people painting directly onto fabric with natural dyes. And I loved this approach. Like I'm pretty sure I have like multiple screenshots of your like little onesie for May that you took and like rust dyed over the top of it because I just thought that that was so it was like oh yes okay I've been I've been trying to figure out I've been going really in this direction of like mostly wearing and buying and making undyed or um very minimally dyed things that are like beige or cream or white just natural colors because my feeling is that then I can eventually do things to them in over the course of their lifetime to make it feel more exciting or new to mend them to just sort of like change so my wardrobe will have a changing color palette as I age and as my life stance whatever changes and so to see this this thing that you were applying and applying it to kids I was like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) I know it's like I have the skills and I have the studio so it's like I and I also have this thing with waste right right, right. (laughs) so I'm like the kids are gonna get every last wear out of that onesie that they can you know Mm -hmm. um and so it's just staining I mean I we we all experience it right like like laundry mishaps obviously food you know every life happens to our clothes and I think if I were to look at my wardrobe, I probably would say, apart from like maybe my taste changing, um, that stains might be the number one or two reason why I don't wear something anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I either couldn't get the stain out or, um, yeah, it's there. And so, uh, over dyeing, uh, and particularly you have so much more control with the paintbrush, uh, with the natural dye. So, uh, and it's fun, you know, it's creative. It's like, and you feel less restricted in sort of, I think a lot of people when they come into the natural dye world feel a little overwhelmed with how many, how much there is to consider and how long the process is. So if you can just kind of like wield a paintbrush with the natural color and there's a little bit less pressure there about like getting it right or wrong or even coloration or not splotchy, like that's, 
Um, and that was actually one aspect of the class that I taught at Parsons. The, um, it was actually in collaboration with Tide. I had mixed feelings about that altogether, Tide, the detergent brand, um, right. because they really were all about um, informing the user on how to care for clothing appropriately. Um, and we definitely talked about, you know, the impact that, you know, because the one of the biggest impacts that our clothing has on the environment is the wash and the care and the wear or the, the what we do, the energy we use, um, the resources we use to care for them. And so intentionally designing things, um, some of my students came up with things that were, you know, pre-stained, mm. <laughs> like pre-staining something so that, oh, okay, when you eventually do stain it and in a beautiful, artful way, right? Um, that it's, it'll blend in and that you can, and encouraging or like hoping that you can skill the consumer somehow, whether that be through labeling or, um, you know, how to, uh, further stain it if you like, or, yeah. uh, but yeah, I, I am all about, um, just covering up those stains and, you know, and clothing is a process and I'm right there with you with, you know, creating a basics wardrobe and then like having it change over time. Um, and you know, I am more and more for the first time in my life, actually buying white clothing. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I find yeah. myself doing too. And I'm like, a, year, a couple of years ago, I would not have trusted myself with white things. And it's not as if I've changed, like I'm still as grubby as before. I still <laughs> yeah. get bite grease on everything. But I also <laughs> have kind of adopted this approach of like, it's not really my clothing until it has a bite grease stain on it. <laughs> and I just accept that. And like, for the most part, I'm quite lucky that I don't operate in like overly, you know, traditionally professional roles where I need to look a specific way where I'm like business casual or whatever. But yeah, but I just sort of I'm like, you know, <laughs> clothes get stained. <laughs> yeah. And knowing that there's like this toolbox of like, cool, like in the future, I could take a class from Liz or I could like, so like stitch over the top of it, or I could like, use it while I'm painting something and get paint all over it on purpose or something like that. Like just kind of this, like yeah. there's, there's many, many, it feels very freeing. I feel much less worried about wearing my white clothes and getting them dirty. <laughs> yeah, I know. I actually talked to my friend the other day. She said, what I do when I get my white, um, my favorite white jumpsuit, like when I get a stain on it, cause she loves white. She's, she's, um, she loves color too, but she has a lot of, um, she, she wants to preserve the whiteness or, um, so she'll just paint over it with white house paint. Right. Right. I've heard of people doing this <laughs> I was like, that's before. genius. It's so good. Yeah. I know. I know. I've been thinking about that too. I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just wear one of my jumpsuits while I'm like painting my room white or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good idea. Well, I just have an, one more question for you, which is about people that you find inspiring or people that maybe we need to be following or, um, yeah. Yeah. Could you tell me? Yeah. That? Yeah, totally. Um, so many people, um, but I guess specific to fiber arts, mm. um, uh, I've been following this em embroiderer. You might follow her too. Her name is Marie Sophie Lockhart, Lockhart Ooh, Embroidery. I think I am. She's incredible. She's French. Um, I think she lives in New York, though. Um, although from a post she made a few days ago, I think she's currently in France. But um, an incredible artist on her own in her own right, but also um, using embroidery um, as her medium and taking vintage goods, upcycling them, making them even better with her incredible. Um, sublime original stitch work mm. um, and I mean like her stories on her Instagram alone are like a world historical embroidery education <laughs> uh, 
Um, so been loving, and it just she every time I look at her stuff, it just makes me want to embroider more. <laughs> another another fiber art that I need to to spend more time doing <laughs> yeah. to skill myself in. Um, and then I'm also have been really jazzed lately about uh, another an, another dyer, um, an indigo dyer specifically, mm-hmm. and she's based up in Oregon. I'm actually super excited because I get to meet her. Um, in a week or so, uh, we're driving up to Seattle, um, taking a workshop, an indigo workshop. And but on the way up, I'm going to meet with her and get to die in her um, supremely local indigo vet. It's going to be incredible. She's create. Her, sorry, her name is Brittany Bulls, and she goes by uh, C Spell Fiber okay. on Instagram. Yeah. And um, she also started a super nerdy indigo specific uh, Facebook group where people from all over the world. Um, just share openly information about growing, processing indigo, um, because it really, I've seen it just skyrocket in popularity as far as people just having an interest in growing their own and doing, like, not just dying with indigo, because indigo is never going to not be popular. Blue is the color of the sky, the color of the ocean. Blue is here with us forever, right? So um, just such a thirst and, and love for indigo. So this Facebook group is just so cool. You see people like sharing, you know, where they get their seeds from, how they grow it, how they're processing, answering people's questions. It's just a really cool community. And it's called Indigo Pigment Extraction. And it's a Facebook group. So all those people that want to get super indigo nerdy, check that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she, this, uh, I'm going to see her in a week. And uh, I'm going to, she's being so kind to let me um, play around uh, in her supremely local vat, where she's using indigo that she grew, the alkaline agent, which generally, if you do like a one, two, three fructose or organic vat, you would use something called calcium hydroxide. And she's, they've made their own. Um, uh, she's made her own with uh, a local uh, ceramicist who took oyster shells from the Oregon coast and <laughs> kiln kiln fired them to make slaked lime oh my god so that's the alkaline agent and then they're using wow. cherries as the, the fruit sugar the fructose wow. the reducing agent oh yeah lo- Oregon cherries Boy, yeah that's amazing so <laughs> um super inspired and so yeah so check out uh Brit Bowl's sea spell fiber and um uh Actually, someone who's not on Instagram that I am continually reading, like checking her blog to see if she's posted something new, another dye person um, who I really hope to take a workshop from, and I'm also eagerly awaiting her new book. I just pre-ordered it online. Um, Her name is Catherine Ellis, and um, she lives in the mountains in North Carolina, Um, and my family actually has a mountain house in North Carolina, too, so next time I go, I didn't realize she was there, and I just realized that um, not long ago. Uh, since I've been there last, I'm going to try and, and connect with her in real life. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, hopefully maybe I can take a class from her at Penland. I think she's teaching there next year. But she's got a really great blog and she's, again, open and transparent about her process and like just, um, you know, constantly learning, even though she's been practicing for decades in, in natural dyes. She's a weaver as well. She's um, innovated in a specific type of um, shibori called woven shibori uh-huh. where the thread is drawn in during the weaving process and then it's drawn tight and then it's dyed so um, it's a really a really interesting um, incredible method of, of creating shibori resist wow. um, so yeah check out Catherine Ellis's blog um, blogs are making a comeback right <laughs> 
I need to actually brush up on my blog. It's been like two years since I posted anything. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, and I want to say one more thing. um, uh, I've been really excited about hemp lately and that we're getting closer and closer to being able to to have hemp grown here in America again and have it, um, you know, to scale and all the work that Fibershed's been doing for that. But um, there's a a relatively new platform um, called Svenspace. It's spelled S-V-N space. Um, And that's uh, their Instagram handle too. And check out their website. A lot of awesome education on hemp, not just as a fiber, but as um, a plant and all of the amazing um, attributes and, and things that we get from hemp, yeah. you know, um, oil, um, obviously it's a, it's a food, it can be a fiber, um, and sort of dispelling a lot of the myths that, um, or miseducation about hemp as a fiber and, right. um, just love what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and I always learn something new too about the wonderful, wonderful fiber of hemp from, from them. Amazing. <laughs> cool. Thank you for those resources. I'm like, I was just like, oh, God, I need to listen back to this right after so that I can go like Google these straight away. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here, Liz. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I am equally a fangirl. I like love everything that you do, everything you put out there. just like oh. so real and... I'm always like, yes, yes, yes. Can I, can I say that again in another comment again? <laughs> so, yeah, I love your work and your podcast. And, um, and thank you so much for, for interviewing me. <laughs>